This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry, and today I'm in conversation with Halon Habila, author of Travelers. As writers, you must engage with the important issues of the day, of your country, of that place and time where you're living. So never shy away from the political. Always try to engage with it, but you must go beyond the political. You must take the political into the artistic. You're listening to WERA 96.7 and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. You're listening to Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Halon Habila is professor of creative writing at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Born in Nigeria, Habila was a literary editor of the Vanguard newspaper. His story, Love Poems, won the prestigious Kane Prize for African Writing in 2001. This was the first of many international awards and fellowships. In 2012, he was invited to address the Library of Congress in the Conversations with African Poets and Writers series. He is the author of Oil on Water, Measuring Time, Waiting for an Angel, and the nonfiction book The Chibok Girls. His latest novel, Travelers, is published by Norton. Habila will be speaking about Travelers at Politics and Prose Bookstore on Saturday, June 29th. One reviewer said, Travelers has all the weight of art with the sting of breaking news. Joining us in the studio is Halon Habila. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, Berlin, Germany is kind of the grounding center of this novel, Travelers. And it's a city where your family lived for a year. It was also the subject of an article you wrote for the Wall Street Journal in April. Um, And so before we talk about the novel, can you share with us a little bit about your journey from Nigeria to England to teaching here in Virginia? I left Nigeria in 20. 2002, sorry. Um, I didn't plan to leave, actually. Um, I just happened to have won a prize, a literary prize, for the the Kane Prize, as you mentioned in your introduction. So I won the prize, and then I was offered a fellowship in England. So that's basically how I left Nigeria, you know. It wasn't pre-planned. It just happened. So I was in England, in Norwich, at the University of East Anglia, doing my fellowship. Uh, two-year fellowship. I ended up staying there for about five years. And I my first book was published then when I was um, in Norwich. And my second book was written while I was there. From there, I moved to America. I was invited to the U.S. by the late Chino Achebe to be the Chino Achebe Fellow at Bard College where he was teaching. So that's how I moved to America in 2005 and 2006. And, you know, I kept moving. I got a job offer in in the U.S. after finishing my fellowship. And that's how I moved to Virginia, to George Mason University. So it, it kind of happened almost without planning. Um, definitely, I didn't foresee myself being um, in America in 2019, you know, living here. So it, it, it happened. I didn't, like that, yeah. I didn't realize that um, an invitation came from Shinwa Achebe. So you you knew him? Yeah, yeah. While I was doing the fellowship, I worked with him. I 
he basically called me when I was in Norwich in England and the phone rang and my wife picked up the phone and said, Chino Achebe is on the line for you. I said, no. She said, yeah. <laughs> and I went and answered the phone and he said, yeah, this is Chino Achebe. Do you want to come to the U.S. to be the first Chino Achebe fellow? I well, said, yes, I would love that very much. <laughs> I, I guess you didn't hesitate much when you heard that question. No. For anyone listening, the Chinua Achebe is one of the most iconic authors to hail from Nigeria, which leads me to another question. Nigeria, where you come from, is the most populous country in Africa and has a particularly deep literary tradition. And given where you come from, who you've worked with, and how you write today. What does it mean to be a Nigerian author? Um, what does it mean to be a Nigerian author? It, it depends on the time in which the author is working. Um, the definition keeps changing. I mean, there was a time in the 50s and 60s when people like Chino Achebe were just publishing their first novels. There was a different definition for an African writer or for a Nigerian writer. At that time, there was a more united front. Um, critics, mostly Western critics, would refer to all writers from African countries as just African writers because there was little knowledge about the individual countries and there were very few writers writing um, out of Africa. So they, they were just kind of lumped together. And then, of course, as time went on, countries are known. Africa is not a country, it's a continent. So now you have people able to identify individual countries and individual writers. And of course, there are more individual writers from individual countries. So now it's easier for me to introduce myself as a um, Nigerian writer instead of just an African writer. And then, of course, there's, there's the subject matter of what you're writing about. So I guess being a Nigerian writer, one would expect you to set your story in Nigeria and, of course, to discuss Nigerian issues in your, in your book. But for me, and especially in this new book, I try to push the boundaries of what it means to be a Nigerian writer. You can set your book not just in Nigeria, you can also set it outside Nigeria. I think you just have to bring a certain sensibility of you know being Nigerian um, that would sort of permeate throughout your book. But it doesn't, it's, it's, it's very hard to define especially in terms of geographical or subject matter distinctions. So you're just a writer from Nigeria. A writer from Nigeria. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, at one point you were given the opportunity to edit a book. It was titled The Granta Book of the African Short Story. And I have to imagine that in editing that book, there was a lot of pressure to define or illustrate the stories that were coming from all over the continent. And I don't think that that had been done, certainly not frequently. And as you said, these definitions can change. So can you talk about that book? That that was a significant um, moment in your career because you were asked to really pull in all of the themes, all of the, the cultures in kind of a, a tidy little book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was invited by Granta, I think in 2007, to do that. It's, it's a huge task to write the Granta book of the African short story. And, of course, there have been other anthologies of African short stories by people like Chino Achebe and, you know, um, Wole Shoinka did poetry. So I was given the mandate to approach it any way I wanted to approach it. And my approach was to be more inclusive. Um, earlier editors tended to specialize in certain fields or certain areas 
for instance, Chino Achebe's anthology dealt only with stories written in English language. So countries that were formerly colonized by the British and others from Francophone countries would 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 just handle stories from Francophone countries. So I decided to go beyond that and to include stories from all over Africa. So you have the stories from Northern Africa, um, written originally in Arabic. We had to translate them into English. So those were the challenges that we faced. How do you include these stories from other languages that you cannot read? So we had to translate these stories into English and then decide if they are good enough to put in the in the anthology. So I kind of had that pan-African approach right from the start. I just looked at Africa as just one geographical entity and tried to put these stories together, starting from the younger writers to the older writers. Um, that was my challenge. Well, you spoke about the, having more freedom to have expansive stories emerge from uh, in in your books. And Travelers, as we mentioned earlier, is your latest novel. And kind of in the, the run-up to release, you wrote a travel piece for the Wall Street Journal reflecting on your family's year-long stay in Berlin. And you were there in, correct me if I'm wrong, 2013. And I think this would have been occurred just before the peak of the migration crisis that Europe is still grappling with. So I'm curious, when did the idea for travelers begin to emerge for you? Yeah, 2013 to 2014. I was there for one year with my family, like you mentioned. I was um, offered a fellowship called the DAAD Fellowship to go and write a book. So I went with an idea for a book. But then when I went there, I totally dropped that idea (laughs) because as soon as I got there, I was invited by a newspaper called the Freitag to write about a crisis, immigrant crisis. There was a boat that sank in the Mediterranean just off the coast of Lampedusa in Italy. So that was my first introduction to the migrant crisis because being in America, I don't really get to hear a lot about them, uh, what was happening at that time. So I was, once I wrote the article, there was no going back. And I started reading more about them. And of course, there were a lot of them in Berlin that you 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 meet them everywhere you go. You find these migrants, and they have these camps. There was um, a street called Oranian Platz in in center of Berlin, where you have this huge camp in 2013 of migrants who are you know sleeping in the open. So it's everywhere, basically. And for me, why I started thinking of it as a possibility for a story is you know this is so urgent. Why aren't people talking about it? Um, Of course, people are talking about it, but why aren't Africans talking about it? And why don't we have a picture of these people or a representation of these people that goes beyond the media portrayal of what was happening? Um, You know, these sound bites, you know, that you see on CNN, you know, so many migrants have drowned. So I thought, you know, it's important and definitely almost necessary to for a writer to try to humanize the subject matter you know, the news headlines and go beyond the news headlines. So that's what set me on course for writing Travelers. Of course, it took me a while. I didn't finish writing it till last year, so it took me over four years to write it. But that was the impetus. That was the inspiration. Well, that's that's what's <laughs> kind of intriguing about the way you have structured the novel Travelers. The central character, maybe we can refer to him as kind of the grounding character, is a... Nigerian scholar 
who lives in Arlington and joins his wife on an arts fellowship in Berlin. And he quickly connects with a lot of the characters, a couple of which you've just mentioned. Students with expired visas, kind of peripatetic artists, refugees. Some of them are living in an abandoned church and others are living in a place I found really intriguing that you refer to as the Heim. So I'm wondering, can you talk a bit about the central character and then how you discovered um, what you refer to as the Heim and what it represents in the novel. Yeah, Heim, of course, is um, German for home, and that's kind of ironic because that's really the most unhomely place you can ever see. And during my research, I actually went to these Heims, these um, refugee camps. You know, this particular place that I describe in my book is actually a place I went to. It's this huge former dormitory for school, and the refugees are housed there. And it's as bad as I describe it in the book. You know, there's nothing there, basically. So they they stay there. They are kept there. Most of them are waiting for their application for asylum to be to be addressed. So they're, they're kind of in limbo, you know, between status. They don't know if they're going to be accepted or if they're going to be sent back. It's a very, very tough position to be in. How did you gain access to these housing complexes? W- did it result in people that you met from your time in Berlin? or had, I mean, because it's kind of remarkable that you were granted access to witness this up close. Yeah. Once I started doing my research, I had to interview lots of refugees that, that I met in, in Berlin. So I had friends, German friends, who work with um, organizations that working with um, refugees and and migrants. There's a lot of them in Germany. Most of them, you know, young people who either teach them German or do workshops with them or try to help them get jobs, um, those who have working permits. So it's these people who were my guides when I was doing my research. So this is one of the places we went to, the Heim. It's basically open. You can just walk in. There's nothing to stop you from, from going in there. It's not restricted. So we went to this huge building and we walked around and talked to some of them who would talk to us. And so basically, I just wanted to get the the atmosphere, you know, the the impression of how that place looked and what it meant to to, to live there. Well, you talk about the, the lack of a safety net. And in the case of a character we meet rather early in the story, Mark, and you touched upon this just a moment ago, he is from the country of Malawi. Uh, we learned something very unique about Mark. I'll let you reveal what you want to about that character. But for me, it set up a lot of discussion points. And, you know, we, we can talk about um, the stories in abstract, but what you do in the case of Mark is paint very vividly what happens when he loses his student status and becomes a refugee. The, the way that he is treated in Germany can, can change in a second. Can you reflect upon... Mark and how you created that character. Yeah, um, he's an interesting character. And actually, I, I take that character from life, from a person that I knew, not in Germany. So there was an actual character kind of similar to to Mark, different place and time, but everything else similar. So I kind of moved him to, to Germany because his story is about, I, I see him as a metaphor for transgression, you know, for, for changing 
crossing between boundaries. He's different things. He has different names at different times. A lot of characters in the book have different names. They try to reinvent themselves. They try to change. So it's about movement, about crossing borders and crossing boundaries. And at one point, he's this privileged student. And the next thing, he's living in a home because his status has changed. So it's, it, it, it just shows how flimsy, you know, how, um, how do I put it? You know, you have this status today. And because of a piece of paper, the next day, you are a different person. You know, you could end up in jail or in a home just because your paper has changed, because your paper has expired. And that's what defines us, you know, this modern age that we live in, whether you can travel outside your country, whether you can live in another country, it depends on a piece of paper. It's a bit ridiculous at times, um, but, but that is the way modern society is constituted. And when you look at African countries, like I've mentioned earlier, it's so arbitrary, you know, that you could be in this space pre-colonial then the next day you're living in a geographical area that's designed and then you have a different name for that space it's become nigeria or ghana and then to visit your cousins who live in a different country you have to get a visa so that's that's the reality of the modern age that we live in and nothing captures it so well than the crisis the migrant crisis people who the nation itself is trying to destroy them because of some political reasons, because they voted for the wrong person, um, because they belong to the wrong tribe, because they belong to the wrong religion. They have to wake up in the morning and escape their own country and go to another country where they have to live on the mercy of strangers. So that's, that's, that's how arbitrary it is. And that's really the, the sign of this modern age that we live in. This is, and it's going to go on for a long time. It's not, it's not going to end as long as we have nation states, as long as we have these conflicts, as long as people, there's inequality, you know, economic sense, people are going to move. People are going to go to a place where they find more welcome, where it's easier for them to live. People want to survive. That's, that's how people behave all the time. Well, one thing that stayed with me after reading the novel is, well, it was a question that kept coming through my mind, and it has to do with the psychology of exile. And you paint it in different lights throughout the story with the different characters. Some of the characters are desperate to return home. They miss their families. They want to check on their parents and make sure everything is okay. Other characters, like the character of Mark, who we just spoke about, is desperate not to return. So how do you balance the psychology of exile when you're creating these characters? Yeah, there, there isn't, I think, there isn't one single psychology. What is basic, though, what is, what is inherent in all of us is the need for home. So you leave your home and you go to another place and you form a new home. And then that becomes your home. And then there's almost no going back to your earlier home. Even if you go back, you become a stranger in that. So there is that. And then, of course, you have nostalgia you have that place in your mind that you want to go back to, but the place has moved on even as you have moved on. So that that's 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 the irony, you know, of of home and and wanting to to belong. But we keep changing all the time. We keep moving on. Perhaps we can have you read just a page or two from the opening to give the listeners a sense of um, how this character sounds in the novel. Okay. I'll just read from the first page, the opening section. We came to Berlin in the fall of 2012, and at first, everything was fine. We lived on Vogelstrasse, next to a park. 
Across the road was an apotheca, and next to that a retirement home, and next to that a residential school for orphans. The school was once a home for single mothers, but eventually the mothers moved on and only the children were left. The school is made up of two chairless structures, one noticeably newer than the other, behind waist-high cinder block walls and giant fir trees. In the evenings, the children ran in the park, jumping on trampolines and kicking around balls, their voices cutting through the frigid air, clear as the bell ringing. In the mornings, they sat in the courtyard behind the short fence to craft wooden animals and osier baskets under the watchful eyes of their minders. Once, out early with Gina, one of the boys, anywhere between the ages of eight and ten, sighted us and rushed to the low wall. He leaned over the top, almost vaulting over, his face lit up with smiles, all the while waving to us and shouting, Chocolada, Chocolada. I turned away, ignoring him. Gina stopped and waved back to him. Hello! How his eyes grew and grew in his tiny face. Surprise mingled with pleasure as he ran back to his mates. He repeated this whenever he saw us, and Gina always indulged him, but I never got used to it. I never got used to the thin, eager voice and how the other children, about a dozen or so, stopped and raised their eerily identical blonde heads and blue eyes to watch him waving and calling Chocolada as if his life depended on it. Did you experience a scene like this when you were in Berlin? What inspired this opening passage? Um, something similar, but not in Berlin, another part of Germany. And it's not Chocolada. <laughs> it's something else. It's, you know, it's actually, there's a home for autistic children. And one of them, French-speaking, would wave to us as we pass, you know, um, calling out, Sava, Sava. So I kind of um, transpose a few things and change them to fit into the story. Yeah, it it uh, creates an image of what it's like to move to a new country and feel different. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, are, you, you feel as if everyone is looking at you, you know, especially if you are visibly different from the majority of the people there. So it takes some adjusting. It takes time to begin to feel at home there. So it took us almost a year before we kind of felt we belonged, um, in a way, um, to to Berlin. Would like to ask you if you're comfortable talking about it. What are you working on now, or what will you work on next? Um, now I'm working on a book that I've been working on for the past ten, fifteen years. <laughs> yeah, so I've been working on it, on and off. The one thing with writing is that writing fiction, especially, maybe this true for other genres as well but you begin work on a book and sometimes you don't see the whole story you know you are stuck some people call it writer's block i just call it you're not you're not you cannot see it yet the story is not ready so you move on you do other things you write other books and if you're lucky to be able to work in different um, genres you go from genre to genre and you write about other things so this book i'm working on is it's about a young girl, about 14 years old, whose father died um, in America, and she's taking his body back to Nigeria. So that's basically the premise for the book. I don't want to say more than that. 
<laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> I think that's, thank you for, for telling us that much. Yeah. Um, we've worked with some of the great authors in the world. Can you tell, can you tell us a bit about what is the best writing advice you've ever received? And you're a teacher. We've, we mentioned that you're a professor at George Mason. What do you want your students to take away from your instruction? What are you trying to pass on? The best advice I've ever received is from a former teacher of mine. I was trying to become a writer, and I remember we went to him, and you know, me and my friend would say, you know, we want to be writers, we want to be poets. And he said he had one piece of advice for us. He said, as writers, you must engage with the important issues of the day, of your country, of that place and time where you're living. So never shy away from the political. Always try to engage with it, but you must go beyond the political. You must take the political into the artistic. You must transform it. Because the political is the topical is always topical for a moment, then it becomes non-topical. But the artistic, when you mix it with the topical, it takes it beyond that and it becomes um, something that can be read and reread. And it resonates and becomes a metaphor for other things. You know, it goes beyond that particular thing. So it's always going to be relevant. But always engage with what is important in your time and in, and in your day. That's good advice. This is a question that we ask everyone, and I'm really intrigued by what you might say. Can you tell us a book, about a book that you love to recommend that no one has ever heard of? No one has ever heard of in America, or ever, ever, <laughs> maybe. One book I can recommend is by an author, the late Yvonne Vera. She's a Zimbabwean author. She died, um, I think, in 2003 or Four. The book is called The Stone Virgins by Yvonne Vera. Beautiful, beautiful writer, very lyrical. And it's about two sisters. And it's not very political compared to other African authors, you know, who we tend to be very political in, in our writings. But she is so different, very lyrical, very beautifully written. She is known for her, you know, approach through emotional means to, to talk about her subject matter. So I think that book is one of her best books. I don't want to say too much about it, but I think everybody should read this book. Um, it's called The Stone Virgins by Yvonne Vera. It's a wonderful recommendation. Yeah. Well, I want to remind everyone that the book is Travelers by Halon Habila. It's published by Norton. He will be speaking at Politics and Prose on June 29th in Washington, D.C. And can you tell us a little bit more about where we can find out about you and where else you'll be speaking this summer? Yeah, I'm going to put a list of, you know, my itinerary, my tour, on my website. It's hellonhabila.com. And I have a Twitter handle. It's hellonhabila, at hellonhabila. And I'm also on Facebook. And, of course, my publisher's website, WW Norton, will have a lot of information about my my readings and my events over the summer. The book is Travelers. Thank you so much for coming to the program. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. <laughs>